This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to episode four of our Ramadan series on the minefield where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I think last week we, well, we didn't quite coin it, but we almost coined it the great incapacities. <laughs> nice. That sounds good or terrible. I love it. I have to think I about it. it. I should have, it's, the, it's the first time I've ever said that aloud, Scott. That's Sorry, that's Scott Stevens, my co-host. I'm Waleed Ali. It's the first time I've ever said that aloud, Scott, and I, I still don't know whether it's any good. I love it. And, and one of the things that got me thinking in that direction in the first place, uh, there's a philosopher, anybody who's listened to the show knows that there's a, I mean, there a handful of philosophers that I keep coming back to so much so that it spawned the, uh, the phenomenon of, of minefield bingo, which I'm still... Which has never really been formalized, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's about time we did. I know that my, I don't know about you, but in, what's happening in your life, but in my, mm-hmm. my wife was actually coming up with the minefield bingo terms that were going to be, and she's never delivered on this threat. But she's definitely been, like, she's been ruminating on this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people have sent me bingo boards from time to time. Why have you some, never sent them to me? Some of them expert. Well, I'm going to explain to you why. Some oh, of them okay. expert, some of them a little bit trite. The problem with the ones that were expert is that they made me so self-conscious as <laughs> I read And that's why I just can't send it to you because it makes... Oh, maybe, yeah. well, maybe they would the have The bell goes off in my own head whenever... No, that's great. Anyway, Stanley Cavell is a, uh, is a philosopher who means a, a great deal to me. And in one of his earliest essays published from memory, 1972, 1973, he made the distinction between not knowing and not acknowledging. Between not knowing and not acknowledging. He said, not knowing something, that is the absence of a presence. So knowing would be the knowledge and not knowing means that I don't have it. It's just something I don't know. Not acknowledging is the presence of an absence. In other words, not being able to acknowledge something, say not being able to acknowledge the pain that somebody is undergoing, not acknowledging the suffering that a particular social organization or form of political life inflicts. That doesn't mean I don't know it means that I have, there's the presence, if you like, you could call it a blind spot. You could call it, uh, there is something that has gotten in the way so that I cannot recognize in my moral vision uh, that this other person could feel in a way that is deep, that they would be suffering as a result of this particular condition. And so interestingly enough, Cavell says that the inability to acknowledge is something like the presence of contempt. Uh, you you can't see what is really there. Uh, it's not because you don't know it. It's because you can't see it. And by not seeing it, that's because of a particular kind of uh, vicious series of habits in which you've grown up. And so slavery, for instance, would be something like this. This thing that is suffering beneath my whip, this is not a human being. Uh, mm. you, you can't say that the slave owner doesn't know something that everybody else knows but rather there is a condition of soul blindness that he's in the grip of, which means that he can't acknowledge it. So That's so, definitely on mind for bingo, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Soul blindness. So, I mean, for, for me, the idea of a great incapacity, the inability to do something, not because we don't know it or because we can't do it, uh, but because we've bought into a way of life or a social or moral condition in which we find ourselves, despite ourselves, incapable of doing it. I find that terrifying. I find it wonderful yeah. and endlessly productive. I would go further, though, and say that I think it can become a, a lack of knowledge. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, that's right. But that's not where it begins, yeah, I would say. I don't know. I'd need to think more about the okay. beginning and ending of it. You might be right. I just haven't thought about it. I spend all my time thinking of the great incapacities, so I just don't have any more time to <laughs> think of the things that you're raising. Um, so, can we go, go through, through the them? Ones? Yes, go through them, please. Yes. So, the first was a heart that cannot humble itself, which we did, uh, a prayer that is not heard. Last week, we did a soul that is never satisfied. Next week will be an eye that cannot weep. Mm-hmm. This week we do, and this is all, by the way, following a particular, very uh, frequently and authentically narrated supplication of the Prophet Muhammad, where he sought refuge in God from certain things. This week, 
is possibly my favourite one. Knowledge that does not benefit or knowledge that is not of use, you could yeah. translate it as. The Arabic is ilmin la yanfa. By the way, can I just note the brilliance of the linguistic construction here? Because all of them, uh, the the relevant verb is three letters and the last letter in each one of them is ain. So it has a certain sound yeah. to it when you put it all together. Qalbin la yakhsha' du'ain la yusma' etc. There's a certain rhythm to it. that Anyway. I'm getting lost in myself. No, please. Um, knowledge that does not benefit. Uh, I've done a little linguistic thing at the start of each one of these, and uh, this one I think is fairly brief. I just want to observe two things. One is yanfao, which we've translated here, or we've adopted a translation that says that does not benefit. That's a fair enough translation. The The idea of nafao is like it's benefit, but it's also there's an element of, of the good in it. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about knowledge that does not benefit. What we're really talking about, it seems to me, and I'm not offering this, by the way, as a formal Islamic commentary, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. please. Um, But what it seems to me is it's knowledge that is not directed towards the good. Wow. Um, Which implies that there are things that you might call knowledge that are nonetheless corrosive, Mm -hmm. that direct us toward the bad. And there are a couple of ways in which this might happen. And I, I want to get to that later. But before I do that, I want to talk about the term knowledge. So the the Arabic word is ilm and it's, uh, there's so much in it, but perhaps the best related word that I sort of, that I came across was the, the, the verb alama, which is obviously related to it, right? Same three letters, mm-hmm. which is when you inscribe something in such a way that it leaves a a permanent or an enduring mark. So like, um, I guess engraving would be an example of that Mm -hmm. or something. And I just think that semantic field just opens up all kinds of possibilities because it says a couple of things to me. One is that knowledge is only really knowledge when it penetrates. Mm -hmm. And knowledge is only really knowledge when it leaves a mark. Mm -hmm. But that at the same time, and this is directly relevant to this particular incapacity, knowledge is that which forms you. Hmm. So if you learn, if you spend your life learning certain things and treating that as the knowledge that you're going to live your life with, that you're going to carry through your life, then you come out of that a certain way. And if you've spent your whole life learning things that are not of, that are not of benefit, that are not orientated towards the good, then you cannot really expect that you will be orientated towards the good. And you cannot expect that you will have a life that is of benefit. And I think this is profound. So this is sort of my extrapolation. I'm not attributing this to anybody else, but I I feel it's a very profound thing. The the connotations of that are, are enormous, aren't Mm, they? they Um, this really, to use another Scott phrase that might be on a mindful bingo card somewhere, this really raises the stakes of the acquisition of knowledge. And it does so in, I think in two ways. So when we talk about as that which is the good. So it's knowledge that's orientated towards the good. That, I think that exists in two ways. One is the inherent knowledge itself. So there could be forms of knowledge that are sort of in and of themselves, all things being equal, the kind of knowledge we really shouldn't be busying ourselves with. Mm. I would put, and you might want to dispute this, I would put in that camp um, all kinds of gossip. Mm. Good. Right? Yep there are people who know the gossip of the society they're in or of say celebrity culture or whatever in incredibly well. And you could not say they are not knowledgeable. It's just that their knowledge is lay It's not that which is a benefit. It's not orientated towards the good. They may have an argument about that. I, I would, you'd have a hard time convincing me. Um, and that knowledge that they've acquired, what, 
is happening is that something is being inscribed upon their souls as they do this. This is something is happening in the formation of them as they acquire, as they immerse themselves in that sort of world. But there's another way in which knowledge cannot be a benefit. And that is where the knowledge itself could be incredibly beneficial, could be directed towards the good. It may even be directed towards the highest good, but the purpose for which you have acquired it. Brilliant takes you in the opposite direction. Excellent. And an example mm. here might be mm. someone who acquires all manner of knowledge of, well, let's go to the heart of the minefield, of moral philosophy. But they do so such so that people may say they are a brilliant moral philosopher mm-hmm. or so they can take down other people in a series of preferably public arguments. Right. Here, that is knowledge that is now not of benefit because it is actually knowledge that is complicit in their own destruction. Hmm. And here I want to go back uh, to the, I think the first show in the series and just pick up a a point that I mentioned really briefly about, about the heart and about this notion of the qalb, um, which is the Arabic term for it, that in the Islamic tradition from which we're taking this, the heart is not merely a center of sort of, inchoate feeling, it's actually the seat of the intellect. Hmm. The brain is not. And this is telling you something that connects, I think, directly with the idea of knowledge that does not benefit. The heart is the seat of the intellect because knowledge as something that is inscribed upon you, that leaves an enduring, indelible, perhaps permanent mark, it cannot help but be meshed with action or be meshed with behavior. So one of the things that's fascinating when you look at sort of traditional Islamic texts on people who do, when they discuss the the idea of someone who does a terrible thing, they don't describe that merely as a weakness of the flesh or whatever. They describe that as a weakness of the intellect, Hmm. that there is a failure of knowledge. That is to say that what you might have is information, but you don't have knowledge because it hasn't permeated. It's not alama, it hasn't it hasn't been inscribed upon you in a certain way and whatever you have has not been orientated towards the good. So there's a whole comprehensive package, I think, that is connoted in this really small phrase mm. of knowledge Incredible. That, that does not benefit. Oh, okay. Well, I'm done. this is wonderful. Um, because one of my first questions to you from memory when you proposed this topic, the, the five topics, I should say, one of my first questions about this particular is when you say knowledge that does not benefit, is it benefit to the person or benefit to those around? And ultimately what you're saying is both, which I think is incredibly important. But you've also just sketched out beautifully the ways in which knowledge can go wrong. Um, There can be a condition that we might refer to as too muchness, where the sheer tonnage of, let's call it triviality, mendacity, uh, banality, comes to compete side by side, cheek and jowl, with what is true and what is worthy, what, is, uh, right, what rightly commands our attention. Um, going back to one of our shows from our very first season of The Minefield, my goodness, we're getting all nostalgic here. This was, this was Aldous Huxley's prediction for the way in yeah. which society. Oh, I'm so glad you said Huxley. Terrific. I came into this going, Scott's going to go Huxley. We've yeah, got well, to get well, to Huxley. It's yes. not, that's not exactly where I'm going, but yes, in this particular instance. In other words, um, for Huxley, the great threat that we would be facing together wasn't going to be the suppression of knowledge, which is what Orwell thought primarily but rather the inundation of knowledge with triviality so that we would be so saturated with the true, the trivial, and the manufactured that we would either be uninclined or incapable of being able to tell the difference. And if you think about the, the, the stream that runs up social or runs down social media feeds, uh, that is precisely what it is. You'll have the true, you'll have the trivial, you'll have the manufactured, you'll have the banal, you'll have the gossip, you'll have the worthy and that which is owing moral attentiveness. But you put them all together and you have a, a, a situation where you cannot give your attention. And I think in this particular case, you maybe it would be what you would say, you cannot give your heart to that which is most rightly deserving of your attention. So I think that's, that's one thing, but what so strikes me, Willie, the way you just described this 
is it also sketches out, doesn't it? So you've got the, the way in which knowledge can go wrong by, there, by simply there being too much of it. And so it being a kind of uh, perverse marketplace of bad ideas. But then you've got two other situations, which, I mean, my God, how long is this show? We could talk about this for hours. One is, you're right, knowledge that it does not benefit one bit, you in fact knowing. And it doesn't mean that there is something inherently wrong with that knowledge, although there could be. But it's more that it's not something that you need to know in order to give your attentiveness its uh, its proper object. It's so giving that thing which you need to know its proper focus. Um, I'm going to accelerate our little literary um, uh, supplement here, our little uh, literary vignette. Um, this one isn't really literary, but it is something, a little passage from an article from 1962 from Esquire magazine by one of the greatest poets of the of the 20th century. It's W.H. Auden. Uh, so this is something he wrote for Esquire magazine from 1962. Just out of interest, Waleed, he said that two of the forms of knowledge that no one should ever know, and yet which we have indulged with a degree of heedless promiscuity, is his phrase. He says one is the promulgation of gossip. The other is the construction of the cobalt bomb. He said both are not just mm. useless knowledge, but knowledge that has no purpose existing in the world. Both are forms of corrupt knowledge. Anyway, this is, uh, is W.H. Auden from Esquire magazine, 1962. It's an article called, Do You Know Too Much? Even when college is behind us and we become solely responsible for what we learn or fail to learn, we are apt to clutter our minds with knowledge which is irrelevant to our lives. And our motive for doing so is usually a desire for social conformity. We keep imagining we ought to know this or that because those around us know it. Sometimes it's true there can be a conflict between duty and interest. I may be bored to tears by political problems, but if I am to do my duty as a citizen, I must learn enough to make them, uh, sorry, about them, political problems, to make a rational choice when I vote. But unless conscience can give me unanswerable reasons for learning what bores me, the chances are that it is not my conscience that is speaking. And here's the crucial quote. As a rule, we should follow the example of Sherlock Holmes, who refused to learn about the Copernican system because such knowledge was irrelevant to the life of a detective. What's so interesting there is that uh, Auden is, I think, responding to this condition of not just too muchness, but deleterious knowledge. And that one of the things that that does then is it so attenuates, it stretches out our capacity to give our attention to that which is most formative, what matters most, uh, that it ends up diluting it. And so we end up being kind of, you know, taken off into false uh, avenues, into alleys that don't do us or don't do anybody else any benefit. But here's the final one that just strikes me about what you said. There is knowledge. You use the example of moral philosophy. We can also use the example, I think, of facts, can we not? Empirical yep. realities in a common world. This is something we were talking about in a taxi <laughs> or in a cab on the way to the airport not too long ago. There are ways that knowledge that is in fact beneficial, but that is used in such a way that runs contrary to the purpose of the idea of shared facts or shared realities. That means that the wielding of that knowledge, the bearing it, in certain conflictual circumstances turns knowledge into something like a weapon or a platform for our own, uh, for our own self aggrandizement. So one of the examples we talked about in the taxi will uh, is back in 2017, Washington post conducted a survey of 1400 American adults, uh, just shy of 1400. Uh, this is after Donald Trump made the claims that uh, more people attended and watched his inauguration than any other inauguration in U.S. history. Washington Post uh, surveyed 1,400 adults. They showed these adults pictures of Barack Obama's inauguration and Donald mm -hmm. Trump's and asked them uh, which photo contains more attendees. What they were trying to get, if you like, was that gotcha moment. So these were many of whom were Trump supporters. At the time when, of course, 
Trump's team had said it was the most watched inauguration, the best attended inauguration of all time. That's right. And manifestly it wasn't. Yes. And so, I mean, as a kind of empirical reality, what they were trying to get was to somebody say, well, it was obviously this. Ah, but you see that photo is Trump's inauguration. Uh, sorry, that is Obama's inauguration. Uh, fewer are at, are at Trump's. Um, what the Washington Post found to their, I don't know if it's a surprise, they certainly made a great deal of hay in reporting this, quote, even when the photographic evidence was directly in front of them and the question was straightforward, one in seven Trump supporters gave the clearly false answer. In other words, they said that the Trump inauguration with fewer people had more people. I find this fascinating. Because what's the problem here? Is the problem that there are some people who are so loyal to a nefarious political actor that they're willing to say what they know to be false rather than admit what their eyes are telling them? Is that the real problem here? I would say that the problem is in the asking of the question in the first place. Because there, what the Washington Post was doing was taking an empirical reality, the number of people who attended an inauguration, and then use that as a way to humiliate, to demean, to otherwise show up or catch Trump supporters in a gotcha moment that made Washington Post readers feel better about themselves and that in turn, or one can say consequently, or this is precisely the point, demeaned uh, or made Trump supporters look silly. This, I think, is one of those perfect examples where the bearing, the wielding of terms of moral philosophy or quotes from authoritative, seemingly authoritative figures, or even empirical facts, when they are used as a way of bludgeoning others and aggrandizing the self, you would have to say then, wouldn't you, that that is knowledge that does not benefit because its purpose, the fundamental telos of that knowledge, is the boosting of the ego and the humiliation mm. of others. Yeah, that's... I mean, lay on fact. That's... Knowledge that's not of benefit, it's the opposite of benefit. If you accept your characterization, which I do, if I were the Washington Post, I would dispute it. I would say, no, it was about identifying the shape of the problem that we have where facts no longer matter. We move into a post-truth form of politics, uh, illustrating just the depth of that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, put that on, I put that in the discussion because I can hear people screaming at us. But I ultimately accept your characterization mm. because I think even the invocation of things to do with post-truth, et cetera, while I accept that's a real problem and it will, there's something about the Trump presidency that elevated that in a way that is anti-democratic. Can the I? The way that was, well, I'll just finish the sentence. No, the, the way that was weaponized as a code for anyone who supported the Trump presidency mm. or was inclined to be critical of the Clinton administration or sorry, the Clinton uh, candidacy or whatever. And also the way in which that often obscures um, the certain post-truth inclinations that we all <laughs> carry around with us mm, from right. time to time. That's right. And as though Democrats are only about truth, they would never dispute something that I could present a scientific paper to disprove or anything like that. And they would never stick to their guns in the face of evidence. Uh, that is where I think it was. The, that's how the use of it, I think, became um, deleterious. And, and, and there you would say, if part of the telos of the promulgation of a shared empirical world, namely a world in which we are intelligible to one another, within which we understand one another and can act together, if that's the point of the dissemination of knowledge, then you'd also have to say that the way that you overcome the post-truth inclinations of the <laughs> of of the era of contemporary democracy isn't by then turning that into a means of partisan point scoring. You're using knowledge for a self-serving end rather than the open-handed way in which it is meant to operate. Can I hold out one final thing though before we bring in our guest? Because I I'm not sure if this is included in your characterization of knowledge that does not benefit. There are those who are trapped in a condition, I think, of, let's call it incuriousness. So what I need to know is that which serves a particular function, that which benefits my program in life. This would be, say, utilitarian knowledge. Mm -hmm. If that knowledge, if the purpose of it isn't clear, if I can't splice it or graft it into my own 
self-determined life goal, then what's the point me knowing in the first place? This is a sophisticated version of the why do I need to study maths at school? I'll never use it in my life argument. Uh, yes, it's also a, uh, a version of uh, Bankman Freed, founder of uh, bankrupt cryptocurrency scam. Uh, him saying, why the hell would I ever read a novel when I could read a two-sentence summary on Wikipedia or something? What would be the point ever reading a novel? I think... Yeah, because cause it doesn't understand a lemma. Yes. It doesn't understand that point of something that is inscribed upon oneself hmm. that leaves an enduring mark. So there are certain forms of knowledge acquired in a certain way that become enriching, even if they are not practically applied in the way an engineer applies mathematics. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. So knowledge that does not benefit, could it also come to suggest that which is not immediately quote unquote useful, but through the acquisition of which, through the process of having this inscribed upon our lives, a new understanding of what might be useful, not just ultimately in terms of some ultimate telos, but also as a way of enlivening the imagination, of enriching mm. our capacities for moral vision, of reorienting what we think, what we believe life's goals ought to be about. In other words, there's a kind of benefit that is a perverse benefit, that which is only useful to me in terms of my life goals. Mm. And then there's that benefit which suggests a degree of by the acquisition of this, I become thereby transformed. I, I, I see the world in a different way. I think this is a good point at which to observe that all of the incapacities we've discussed, they share a really strong interrelationship that may not be immediately obvious. But so knowledge that does not benefit, well, there's certain knowledge that is of benefit because what it helps create is a soul that can be satisfied. Mm, nice. Excellent. A heart that can humble itself. <laughs> wow. A supplicant who will be heard because their supplication is not ultimately about them and them alone. Mm. And then there's next week's the, the eye that cannot weep. I mean, I should point out that of the five of them, that is the one that has the sort of weakest historical chain of narration. And so it's a, it's a slightly separate thing, but. It's not exactly a sharp left me? turn. Though, at no, the end of the it's, series. it's it's an extension. Yes, that's I mean right. it, it's it's understood to be weak in its narration, but ultimately embody a, a truth. So it was widely cited, even though it was a weaker historical narration. But that's talking about, and well, I don't want to do next week's show. But an eye <laughs> weeps when the the heart has been penetrated. Right? Yes, that's right. When it's capable of that, when that heart humbles itself. So all of these things that they, they don't exist in silos, and maybe a heart that can humble itself and a soul that is easily satisfied is better equipped to identify that knowledge which benefits. Brilliant. All right, should we bring in our guest? Yes, please. I don't know about anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this series. I just cannot believe the terrain that we are managing to traverse. Uh, and as you can imagine, by listening to the last three that we've done and now this one, it takes a very, very brave guest indeed to be willing to try to work our way uh, across this particular mental, uh, ethical, spiritual landscape. But Christopher Mays, is just such a courageous guest. Christopher Mays is Senior Research Fellow in the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization and Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at Deakin University. Chris, welcome back to the minefield. Thank you. It is uh, good to be here with uh, some trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let Scott talk you into trepidation. No, no, no. no. For, for me, the wonder is that we have guests who are taking up the invitation in the first place. Um, <laughs> this is tremendous. Look, Chris, uh, we've talked, I think we've covered a number of the different valences of knowledge. I don't want to straightjacket you into one particular thing that we've discussed. Where, where do you want to take up the conversation? What do you think we should pursue here? Uh, well, look, I'm really, really at a bit of a loss. There are so many great avenues to go down. I, I was really uh, struck by Waleed's characterization of this um, prayer, uh, supplication, particularly this idea of a knowledge imprinting on oneself and, and, you know, sort of lost in thinking about the way that I guess another, and I'm not sure how this would relate to the Arabic, but sort of a patina of over years, the way that a knowledge can build up like on a gold ring or on a cup or a piece of um, 
art if it's not sort of washed, but in that building up of knowledge and of life experience, there can be a, a profundity that uh, comes with that life. Um, you know, I've met very wise people, and, and I guess here's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom, but mm. um, wise people over the years who you come away from an encounter with them where you feel like, I wish I could just read a book and know all the things that you know, but it's actually through them having lived their life. So that's one idea that I think is really valuable from this discussion. I mean, the Caval quote at the beginning as well, I think this uh, acknowledgement and knowledge distinction and, and the the presence of an absence, I think is really important in areas that made me think about um, work I do in the history of medicine and encounters between doctors and patients and the way that a lot of knowledge, particularly a scientific knowledge about a disease condition, can lead to or cover up an acknowledgement of the patient that is before them and that person's own lived experience of that condition or, or illness. Mm. So, And therefore misdiagnosis. And so therefore I misdiagnosis. I mean, endometriosis is the thing that comes to mind immediately. So many stories you hear about, I knew it was, I said it was, I was told it wasn't, I was told it was just in my head. and then Yeah, and exactly yeah. with endometriosis and particularly with um, women and racialized minorities, uh, long historical disbelieving of their own testimonies about their bodies. And, and it seems to fit into that schema of what Caval was talking about, of an unacknowledged presence or no yeah. absence. Mm, yeah, You'll yeah. have to refresh me on that one, Scott. But yeah, so that's, uh, I think, one avenue. I mean, then another area that I guess in, in thinking about this, and this is perhaps the least interesting, <laughs> is, and I don't really like these terms, but they're commonly used, um, consumers and producers of knowledge and the different infrastructures and ecologies around. So some, someone working in the university, part of what we are doing is arguably producing knowledge. Mm -hmm. And is that knowledge production beneficial? Who's it beneficial for? What are the rewards and incentives around that production of knowledge? And then what effect does that have on, again, not really liking the consumer language, but the people who are consuming or using that knowledge, I think. Are you asking these as questions or are you in a bad way making a comment? <laughs> well, there's plenty of comments I could make about that uh, second. Well, feel second free to moment. make them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think within the university, there is increasingly shifts and changes around the kinds of knowledge that is produced. And, and in this context of thinking about moral philosophy as well, the kinds of imperatives to have uh, policy relevance and those sorts of very direct beneficial outcomes from the kind of knowledge that is produced, both incentives from funding bodies, but also I think recognition within universities, but interestingly, perhaps not always necessarily recognition within a discipline in the sense that someone could receive a whole bunch of grants and acknowledgement from a funding body, but within the society of philosophers may not be held up in the highest esteem, to use one mm. example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There is something that you raised, Chris, that I, I just, it's something I think about a lot. It's something I find I worry about constantly. We often talk about sort of empirical knowledge or say the construction of an empirical world, empirical facts, let's say. But then there's also a kind of new phenomenon, isn't there, that we might want to refer to as objectified knowledge. Knowledge that exists, and I know that it exists, and I know where to find it, and I know where to reference it, I know where to track it down, but I don't know it. Mm -hmm. So here an example would be, this would be the equivalent of a child being given a calculator uh, instead of being taught how to do calculus or algebra. We teach algebra, trigonometry, calculus for a very, very good reason. And then we give a calculator afterwards. Um, here we would say that there's this whole domain of objectified knowledge. And we know that it's there, but to take up Waleed's point, it hasn't imprinted itself upon us. It hasn't gone to the level of, say, experience or of wisdom. And therefore we would say it's a kind of resource and it's something that we know that we can get when we need it, but it has no effect, if you like, on our lives. It hasn't left a residue upon us. Um, we can't know everything, obviously. And it's good to have sort of books there that one can consult. 
But at the same time, there's something here about knowledge reduced to use value that I can find when I already know what I'm looking for versus knowledge, you know what I mean? Versus knowledge that has already to some extent transformed the way that we see the world. Can I, can I just add something here? This is, my wife was talking about this conversation she had with a memory expert or expert practitioner does a lot of amazing memory things. And they made a really interesting point, which is we no longer memorize things because we can Google stuff. And we regard memorization as a kind of inferior form of learning. But actually, one of the great things that happened with the memorization of texts or whatever is that they became things you carried around with you that informed you and formed you Mm. at every moment rather than things kind of like a quarry that you went to and extracted resources from as and when you needed them. You sort of pillaged from them. No, it's different. When you've begun with the memorization of texts or certain things, it, it meshes with you. That's knowledge because it actually imprints. And then you can use them in a much better way. And we've completely lost that because the way we view knowledge is now a totally different thing. I think that's sympathetic with what yes, it's exactly you're saying right. there. Exactly. Scott, yeah. yeah. I guess like an having scripture written on your heart or something, yeah. some those biblical uh, metaphors. I think, and I'm going to sort of try to punch a couple of uh, bingo points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To use the example, you know, within the context of the university, but not only um, the rise of chat GPT mm. and the AI generated, you can put in any question, you know, someone could put in the question, you know, what's the distinction between Aristotle and uh, Arendt's conception of virtue and the good life? Oh my um, God, Chris! You why just, don't we throw in Irish? The car just lit up. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is going to spit out. You know, I've put in some of these things. It's going to spit out a pretty good answer that would be, you know, convincing in a, a range of different domains. And so that that's the sort of calculator example. Mm. Then one can also know it through having read it and and have the expert knowledge that comes with being a moral philosopher and the requirement to sort of know these texts and um, be expert in them. But then I think taking this a step further of is that knowledge embodied when one is confronted with the situation in which mm. you are called to act virtuously mm. um, and to know how to act, not necessarily applying an Aristotelian or a Rentian perspective uh, on a particular situation, but actually being embodied and living in that situation and how does this built-up knowledge, this patina, if you like, this formation shape the way one lives and breathes and acts in a situation. And at the risk of veering off, Mm. is memorisation a big part of that? Like, would that be, would that leave us with a very different universe of knowledge Mm. if if that's how we still went about it? I think memorisation and, you know, I'm no uh, expert on these concepts, but I think you know, we can think of memorization in a kind of rote learning where it's not really absorbing. But I think mm. what we're talking about is like the practice of uh, memento mori, you know, remember mm, that you right. will die. It's that's a rehearsal, right. it's a practice. And so mm. I think in the kinds of knowledge that we're talking about, it, it's a memorization and a, a practicing through that mm. and applying those texts or those, you know, moral philosophies to one's life and, and thinking and imagining how one would respond. Okay. Anyway, what we have in common there is the idea that knowledge is only really knowledge when it's meshed, mm. when it becomes applied um, through practice because it's been imbibed in this well, way. Hang on, Willie. distinct from information. Yeah. I'm not sure that's... Okay. So we're saying we've sketched out two extremes. One is memorization on the one hand, and then the other is, you know, uh, it's it's there when I need it. I can Google it or I can sort of put it into a search engine and, and find it. Yeah. I think there's something else, and this is going back to the show that we did earlier this year with, uh, with Marianne Wolfe on literacy, that there is a process of, I think, the only way of describing it, I mean, Proust certainly did, that when one reads well... There is a process going on there that can only really be described as moral encounter. I mean, I know the difference. I know the difference when I'm skimming a chapter because I'm looking for a particular thing versus sitting with that and wave upon wave of 
confusion and uncertainty and partial recognition and fuller recognition and getting a glimpse versus recognizing the implications. I mean, all three of us know the difference between, between that sitting with something and allowing it to wash over us mm. uh, versus cherry picking information or dipping into something because one is looking for a, a particular quote. I mean, memorization, I think, is an extraordinary example but you can also have memorization without without moral encounter. I mean, you can have rote yeah, learning yeah. without that really becoming part. And I think this is where, isn't it, Chris? This is why there are disciplines. There are areas of knowledge where there's no such thing as an expert. I mean, within religious traditions, there's no such thing as expertise. Even the highest, most learned sages and scribes and theologians, they're not experts in theology and in moral philosophy. There's no such thing. As I'm expertise. Not sure that's right, actually, Scott. Really? Yeah. Because because expertise means I'm holding the reins on this. I've got control I... over the data. Whereas to say that one is, say, a steward, and anybody who knows anything about theology, about yeah. moral philosophy, you know that what it is you've been entrusted with, this is a wild beast. This is something outside of your control. And as soon as you say that you've mastered it, it turns around and reminds you in the most painful way that you are a subject of this knowledge. It's Maybe this is a semantic difference. I, I just, I still think you can have expertise without having dominion. You can have and, and when we say expertise, yeah. I think what we're denoting there is that you have an area of specialization. And I think this is really apposite within moral philosophy and also within religious traditions. So I think of like within religious traditions, you have people who are, their expertise, their specialization might be in some aspects of theology. Others might have a jurisprudential expertise. Mm -hmm. Others like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to sort of throw out the notion of expertise if it, what it throws out is people who have gained a mastery of these sorts of ideas um, or these sorts of disciplines. That's not to say they can never be gazumped. <laughs> it's not to say mm, that right. there isn't knowledge that exists outside of their control. Yeah, but I don't know if we're having a an actual disagreement or a semantic one. Yeah, possibly. So I'll just let Christopher talk. Take us out, take us out, Chris. <laughs> well, I, I mean, on this question of moral expertise, I mean, this is a hot issue in the area of um, bioethics mm, and medical right. ethics where there are some people, you know, well-known people such as Peter Singer, who's written multiple articles arguing that there is moral expertise um, that can be brought. And I, you know, know of people who would call themselves uh, an expert in matters of bioethics and medical ethics. I, however, am quite uncomfortable with that idea, particularly, I think, because we are dealing with, uh, I think, there's a folk wisdom in the way a, a lot of the things that in, say, bioethics and medical ethics talking about, you know, how to respond to a medical dilemma that involves the death of a child. Mm. Like, I, th I think the kind of wisdom required to intervene and act in those situations isn't something that is going to come from knowing different logical inferences between yep. uh, types of arguments or having read a whole range of history of moral philosophy. Uh, mm. And so this is something, and another bingo point, uh, Raymond Gaeta, I think, is one of his main mm, criticisms right. of a lot of the development of applied ethics and applied philosophy is that it retains no fear, it retains no uh, trepidation as it encroaches on these areas and no mystery, particularly in uh, medical ethics and bioethics. This, there's a disdain for something like dignity. You know, there's a whole literature on the dignity wars, um, wanting to sort of remove that concept from a lot of uh, bioethical discussion. Mm. And I think talking about the production of this knowledge, people, and this is Gator's critique, that within this academic context, people can be rewarded for coming to the most egregious conclusions. Yes. The more um, radical it is, the the more deeply you must have thought about it. Yes. Sort of, yes. And, yeah. and, you know, that you are at the sort of peak of your yeah. powers. Can I ask what is, um, I will confess, an uncomfortable question. Mm -hmm. This is for both of you. So mm -hmm. Scott, no doubt you'll have views. When we're talking about knowledge that does not benefit, where do we put things like the news or my intimate knowledge of the details of the various sporting teams I follow. Let's start with the news, because that's perhaps a more confronting example. 
Because I think for a lot of people that consume news, they lead themselves into believing this is a virtuous act. It's sort of an essential part of their democratic duty. It makes them a better person because they know what the Productivity Commission said about X. And I'm better than you if you don't. I feel like in a way, I mean, obviously news channels, this is the view of the world they offer. But I also think we see this in action in social media context as well, right? Where being on what the news is doing at that moment carries a certain virtue. Um, being able to school people in a news-based argument about or something in the immediacy of social media carries not just cachet as a matter of ability, but it, it speaks to virtue. Mm. And yet I often find myself thinking about the uselessness of news, mm. whether what news is is actually entertainment dressed up as importance rather than importance dressed up as entertainment, hmm. um, Wow! if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it brings out a, a, an important dimension to a lot of what we've been talking about in the way newness, news, you know, that mm. I think the timeliness of knowledge as well, both when do you need that particular knowledge, but also is it going to have that lasting relevance? And so news can be really important in a 24-hour window, particularly if, you know, you're somewhere where there's a bushfire warning or mm. the winds are changing and you literally need to know some news about that. And then obviously more immediate things. There's going to be a big development near your house or something like that. But the news, I think, its newness can, uh, you know, you read a newspaper from 30 years ago and some of it can be still relevant and some of it can be... Not so relevant. So I guess what I'm sort of floundering around is more this idea of the timeliness of knowledge, I think, is is important. But even the usefulness of it, yeah. right? Well, that's where I think it can also stray into what you were saying about gossip. And yes, you were talking exactly. about that's right. news like broadcast media, but I also was thinking about news as well in, you know, you can be in an academic discipline and it's not quite gossip, but it's like, oh, do you know the latest development that this is happening, this person's written this paper or this sort of controversy is happening over there and it is this kind of titillating entertainment. Oh, so you about... mean news even in the social sense? In the it? social sense, yeah. Okay, that's a, that's really interesting. But even in the more formal sense of it that mm. I mean, you know, yeah. things that come at you from broadcasters and mastheads and so on, is it just trumped up gossip? Is it full of, in many cases, things we actually don't need to know? but are somehow convincing ourselves or being convinced we need to know that it isn't of any benefit. And we're just being, to come back to our lemma, where things are being inscribed upon us that actually are not helpful and may even be corrosive, mm. but we've come to regard as somehow important. Mm. Um, can I say, Willard, I think it's actually worse than what you just said, mm. uh, that not only is a great deal of what we're presented with in the under the banner of news, not only is it the equivalent, let's say the epistemological equivalent of gossip, but even the whole phenomenon of, as it happened, reporting, where what we end up getting is the drip, drip, the piece by piece, the salacious development with very little regard for the way in which things in fact develop so that we can see something like a more accurate picture, which can only develop over time. I think that's one aspect of this. The other is news as a prop or an ornament for one's vanity. And this isn't new. I mean, you have Gustave Flaubert very famously uh, dressing Monsieur Homme in Madame Bovary uh, as someone who, before going out to hobnob with people at restaurants or cafes at night, swats up on the newspaper and then wears, he says it, wears the news out like the latest brocade or like a new hat or like a scarf one a particular way. In other words, one mm. arms oneself with something not in order to be informed, but in order to seem informed. And I think there you'd have to say, uh, okay, we want an informed electorate, but is this really informed? Or are we busying ourselves with ephemera that are dressed up to look important, whereas by fasting <laughs> with our news or information consumption, by giving ourselves over to those forms of knowledge acquisition that really do leave the imprint that Chris was talking about before, that form us, make us more attentive in the way that we understand and see things, 
those are the kinds of things that yield lasting benefit and within which what we come to think of as the ephemera could find a, a safer home. But simply the consumption and then the use of that consumed information in order to burnish one's own online or social credentials, uh, that would have to well, be regarded. Well, that's clear. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's useless or not beneficial, even if the information is beneficial. It's the first question about whether it's beneficial in the first place that terrifies me. And that's before we get to sport. But I think, we, I mean, with, with sport, you can have things that you pursue as an object of love. Right. I mean, truly, you would not say that so, objects so what, of love can, are necessarily can, useful. Okay, so Christopher, can celebrity gossip be an object of love? Oh, I don't know enough about celebrity gossip, but I can... <laughs> That's a very good answer. <laughs> but I can tell... Uh, sport, I think that can be an object of love in, in terms of even sporting gossip, mm. if you like. Um, you know, I, I do enjoy watching sporting documentaries, even about people and sports I don't even follow or know mm. much about. So uh, George Best, I didn't really yeah. know much about him and then watched this documentary. And I think that they do provide, you know, these lived experiences of people that are sort of a moral tale. He's quite tragic, I think. Well, which is also is... true of the celebrity gossip exactly. documentary, that's why that, right? Exactly. That's why I'm saying I don't know enough about that to sort of say anything because yeah. I do think that when it comes to someone's life, maybe the day-to-day -day account is not going to be particularly edifying, but I think in seeing, um, yeah, how one's life rolls out when confronted by all of these different pressures, internal and external, mm. and how they um, overcome or are overcome by them, mm. um, I think can be of value. Mm. Scott, do you want to weigh in? Can gossip be an object of love in the way that you say sport can? Uh, by definition, gossip is an intrusion, is it not? I it, think so. Yeah. No. Uh, okay. And... Incidentally, this is why, going back to the article I read from before by W. Jordan from 1962, he said the academic dressing up of gossip in the form of Jane Austen's diaries revealed, he said that should qualify under the fullest censure, under the category of useless knowledge, things that we should not know, things we should never know, uh, in the same way as sort of day-to-day, -day, uh, more trivial celebrity gossip, should I, I find myself in full okay. agreement with that. So what about then trade talk in the sporting context? Exactly the same uh, category. Exactly the same, same category. Yes, I do. Until the trade is done? Yes, exactly. Wow. All right. That's the closest we've ever got to a concrete answer on anything on the minefield. <laughs> so this is something of a landmark moment. Christopher, thank you for being here to witness that landmark, but also to contribute so much, so richly to it. Christopher Mays is Senior Research Fellow in the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, Senior Lecturer also in Philosophy at Deakin University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, the fourth edition of our Ramadan series for this year, the fifth and final next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.